Welcome to Dispatches, the official podcast for the Journal of the American Revolution. The Journal of the American Revolution publishes weekly online at www.allthingsliberty.com. For the latest in research, reviews, and commentaries, America's Most Important History is available free of charge at the Journal of the American Revolution. The colonists were adamantly concerned with being left out. And what I mean by this is that they were being rejected or pushed aside from the political process. In a very nuanced and a very powerful way, the colonists were ultimately concerned with not being counted anymore, not being considered or seen or heard as British subjects. That's California State University professor Dean Caivano talking about the ideological roots of resistance and tyranny in the American Revolution. And he's our guest today. I'm Brady Kreitzer, and this is Dispatches. This episode was brought to you by Casemate, publishers of The Quaker and the Gamecock, Nathaniel Green, Thomas Sumter, and The Revolutionary War for the South by Andrew Waters. Available now wherever books are sold. Hello, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome back to another episode of Dispatches. I'm your host, Brady Kreitzer. Today, our guest is California State University professor Dean Caivano, and he'll be discussing the ideological origins of a lot of the very heavy language that we hear leading up to the American Revolution. You will hear terms like resistance and oppression and tyranny, and slavery a lot when you study the uh, commentaries and articles and editorials and speeches leading up to the revolutionary period. But where does that come from? Where does the message begin? Uh, We hear a lot of people today in politics, you know, everybody has an opinion, in many cases spouting out the same kind of talking points. They don't make those up. Those are delivered in the form of a message. And it's usually highly calculated and unfortunately, in my opinion, very effective. Uh, and that's not something new. And that's what we'll be discussing tonight. Uh, seeing how those same methods and tactics are applied in the 18th century and how much effect they really had. Spoilers, it's a lot. So sit back, relax, and enjoy our interview with Dean Caivano. Dean Caivano. Thank you for joining us. Hey, thanks for having me, Brady. Glad to be on the show. Tell us about your background. So I'm a lecturer of political science at California State University, Stanislaus, which is out in the Central Valley of California. And beyond that, I'm also a trained political theorist. And mostly my work deals with historical and conceptual understandings of democracy. Primarily, I investigate and I explore how individuals and how collectives over the the lifespan, over the history of the American Republic, has challenged these logics of control and domination. And ultimately, my work explores how how history really informs political theory, but also the flip side of that, of how political theory seeks to explain history. Now, the reason I look at this sort of duality between history and political theory is really in order to help us more fully grapple with the complexities of politics and of change and of revolutions and resistance. What first drew your interest into this topic? Well, my previous sort of major research project was on 
the political philosophy of Thomas Jefferson. And particularly what I was looking at in that project was what Jefferson's ideal vision of democracy looked like, meaning what did his take on a democratic society really look like? What were the, the permutations and the facets and sort of the, all the details and curvatures of this modeling? Now, naturally, when I'm working through Jefferson's arguments and working through sort of the vast cornucopia of Jefferson's writings, which span over 50,000 private letters, you know, I, I'm unpacking what he has to say about history, what he has to say about nature, and really how it all relates and how it sort of leads to this unsystematic but really innovative prescriptions on democracy and his ideas of what the American Republic ought to strive for and how it could be constructed. Now, of course, while I'm digging through Jefferson's work, I'm looking at his summary view. And I'm at uh, Monticello doing some archival work. And while reading summary view, I become incredibly fascinated with his depiction of the colonists. And really, his depiction of the colonists is in very stark and very vivid terms. It's in, uh, it's in the state of slavery. He's depicting the struggle of the colonists and the colonies at large as sort of this quasi-state of slavery. Now, of course, there's huge contradictions going on here, and I'm sure we'll talk about that in a bit. But what I really wanted to do was to sort of work backwards. And I sort of wanted to trace sort of this reverse genealogy of how the colonists understood their condition as the state of slavery. And to do so, I wanted to sketch out a more concrete, a more nuanced account of sort of the different maturations and the different colors that sort of motivate and lead to revolutionary action. Now, by sort of exploring and unpacking why the colonists saw themselves in this state of quasi-slavery, you know, what it really leads to and what my argument seeks to really push forward is that the colonists were adamantly concerned with being left out. And what I mean by this is that they were being rejected or pushed aside from the political process. In a very nuanced and a very powerful way, the colonists were ultimately concerned with not being counted anymore, not being considered or seen or heard as British subjects. How did American Britons define the term freedom? Now, this is a incredibly important question that you ask here. You know, on one level, it's incredibly important because this is a question that in a very striking and a very important way, is missing from our current political dialogue. I mean, often we hear candidates and politicians campaigning for political office, and they're talking about this policy and this idea. But what's always pushed to the backdrop and what's always sort of pushed to the margins is what freedom actually means in the American polity. Now, this question wasn't in the background. It wasn't a secondary question for the colonists. In fact, the question of freedom, what it meant to be free, to be a free citizen, a free subject under the crown, well, heck, this question is at the forefront of all their considerations, all their deliberations, all their motivations for action. Now, the question about how did the American colonists actually define freedom, heck, it's also really important because it exposes the sort of numerous strains of ideology and the numerous strains of political thought that are going on in the 1760s and 1770s. Now, I like to consider, and I, I think that the colonists viewed freedom in three different ways. Now, the first sort of understanding that they had towards freedom is what I like to call freedom as non-interference. 
Now, what I mean by this is in a very simple way, they thought freedom was ultimately about removing impediments, about removing barriers or hurdles that prevented an individual from doing what they ought to do. Now, this idea of freedom as non-interference, it had three sort of really important planks to the colonists. It had an economic dimension. It had a societal sort of progressive dimension. And of course, it also had a political dimension. Now, in economic terms, freedom as non-interference was ultimately concerned with how they could go about doing their economic business. And there's a whole host of acts that were coming from Westminster Parliament that really impacted this sort of economic realm of freedom. You know, we have the Navigation Act, we have the Hat Act, we have the Iron Act, we have the Sugar Act, and all these acts in one way or another, they restricted how the colonists could go about doing economics. You know, it, in some ways, it exclu exclusively relegated trade to Great Britain. Now, on the other front, this idea of societal progress that was ultimately intertwined with freedom as non-interference. And again, this sort of relates back to the economic dimension and the economic argument that was being put forth by the colonists. You know, many of the colonists thought that they were unable or they lacked the ability, the freedom to, to engage in free trade. But beyond this idea of free mobility, this fluidity of movement, there was something a lot more important, a lot more at play here. And that was the idea of Western expansion. And here we see all the way back in the 1750s, all the way to the 1770s, this idea, this impregnated idea of Western rapture. And this comes through very vividly and very importantly in Jefferson's summary view, when he understands mobility sort of as this, this natural right. And so the restrictions both by the Crown and by Parliament to prevent Western expansion on the terms of the colonists well, this, this too saw sort of this impact of this lack of freedom. Now, the third sort of important plank that I want to talk about here for freedom for the Brits, for the British Americans as non-interference was, of course, political. And here there were numerous impediments to political representation. But, you know, we also see this really important account of the impact on political freedom. And that comes through from Joseph Priestley. Now, Priestley is key here because he stresses that the colonists, not only were they left out of the realm of political representation, but the key thing here was that they were left out of the lawmaking process. Now, that's crucial. Now, I really think the colonists, in sort of the macro and major way, saw this idea of freedom as non-interference. But there is another sort of competing theory of freedom going on here as well, and that one picks up the third aspect that I just mentioned, and that is a theory of non-domination. Now, this is explicitly in a political context, and many of the colonists started to rise up and to challenge the authority of the crown because of this idea of freedom as non-domination. Now, once again, I mentioned Priestley before, and Priestley is still important here, and he's really important because of his commentary on the Declaratory Act. And you know, he draws attention to this act in a few very important lines, in particular when the, the act references that Parliament still maintains the full power and the full authority in all cases whatsoever to make legislative decisions over the colonies. 
Now, Priestley takes this up in a very political context, and he relates it to this understanding of tyranny. And the importance of tyranny is that, well, once it gets released, once it's set out into the political scene, it's uncontrollable. You can't recall this. You can't really recall it unless there is political action that attempts to afford it, to stop it. Now, Priestley goes on and he brings this to the forefront, this idea of freedom as non-domination, by talking again about the Declaratory Act. And he tells us that in this act, you know, the colonists would submit to one penny, one penny attacks on whatever product, whatever item they may be thinking about. And that's not really the issue for Priestley, and that wasn't really the issue for the colonists. The real issue at play here is not that Parliament could tax the first penny, but it's that they could tax the last penny of the colonists, meaning that what was beginning to percolate, what was beginning to come, fo come forward and unravel here was a systematic plan of tyranny, a systematic plan of domination. Now, the results of this understanding of freedom as non-domination comes through in really stark colors. It's the fear of no longer being counted. It's the fear of losing status. It's the fear of no longer being held equal to and with the law. Now, both these counts of freedom for the, for the colonists, non-interference and non-domination, they're really important and they give us a, a great deal of historical analysis to sort of situate the context of what the colonists were facing. Importantly, both the accounts are descriptive. Now, what my article seeks to do and what my work generally seeks to accomplish is to expose an often overlooked idea of freedom that the colonists had. And this is a positive theory, and this is the third understanding of freedom that I think the colonists exhibited, and that's freedom as action. Now, in exercising action, in resisting these threats of no longer being counted, in resisting the foreclosure of the political, keeping the colonists away from the realm of making law and being politically represented, well, in the very process itself, the colonists were experiencing freedom. You know, we get this from Dickens, uh, John Dickinson in 1775 when he tells us that the colonists would rather, you know, die as free men than live as slaves. And, you know, Jefferson and Dickerson both really accentuate this idea of freedom as action and the necessities for taking up arms. And what I want to show here and what I hope the article at least starts the conversation towards is that for the colonists, in a very political sense, to be free meant to act, and to act meant to challenge seats of authority. How did Westminster manage public pressure from a constituency in both England and America at the same time? Okay, I, I think this is a phenomenal question and really important talking point for our evaluation here. And it's a great question because Westminster and the King Neither of them represented the totality of the perspective coming forward from the island towards the American issue. You know, we see and we discover a great number of radical British Whigs who opposed the policies that Westminster was putting forward. You know, importantly, the treatment of the colonists represented and it very much illuminated a bigger issue. And the bigger issue at play here was the defective nature of the British polity. You know, thinkers such as James Berg and, 
and Holm really believed that it was necessary to purge these malignant ailments that infected the British colony. Now, the American dilemma, the struggle of the colonists, what it really did was to give British thinkers a concrete example to express this sort of problematic element of the British system. Now, Westminster, the, the parliament itself and the members of parliament itself, well, they weren't unified either in their opposition of British re- of American resistance. You know, for example, if we look at Edmund Burke, we see a strong voice criticizing British policy towards the colonists and actually inviting and celebrating and really ultimately thinking that separation is the only course. But you know, the larger issue here to consider is that Westminster did, much like, heck, any sort of elected bodies, they did what most of them do. They tread lightly and they tread very slowly. You know, we did see them repeal the, the Stamp Act in 1766, but time and time again, they often towed the line towards making sure that losing the colonies was not on the table, making sure that the colonists were in check, making sure that mainland Brits were satisfied and taken care of. And often this sort of further perpetuated the narrative that those living in the colonies were second-class citizens. Describe the roles of two men featured prominently in your article, John Trenchard and Thomas Gordon. Well, their work here, and by their work, I mean Cato's letters from 1719 and 1723, they're absolutely crucial, and they're key to the colonist struggle against Great Britain. Now, why they're so important is, in a lot of ways, they, the work that they put forth here and the conceptual arguments that they put forth, well, they lay the groundwork for the major issue that the colonists are going to take up. And that is, again, the inability to possibly even conceive themselves as being free subjects. Now, what, the Cato, what Cato's letters perfectly and beautifully represent is that the idea of freedom and the possibility of freedom always needs to be kept alive. And once we foreclose these lines of thought, once the populace, the many, the people, the masses no longer see this, this trajectory, this, this horizon of freedom coming around the bend, well, then the sense starts to percolate. Now, what Cato's letters perfectly show is that it sort of gives us this third understanding of freedom that I talked about. It gives the idea of freedom as, as action a conceptual depth. It sort of fills in or sort of provides the coloring of the, of the sketching of what freedom looks like. And what I mean by that is Cato's letter really importantly presents a positive theory of freedom. Both these thinkers tell us that freedom means to live upon one's own terms. Now, this gives us the framework, this gives the colonists the framework to grapple with their issue, to sort of take up these series of acts and laws that are being placed upon them without any sort of recall, without any sort of voice in the process, and to say, hey, are we actually living upon our own terms? And the really important thing here is the flip side to that. The question, not only are we living on our own terms as apropos, But the antithesis of that question, which asks, what is the opposite of freedom in this case? Well, the opposite for the colonists coming back from Cato's letters is, well, it's slavery. And this really starts to, 
weave together these various points and these various building blocks of ideas and thoughts and starts to connect that there is a systematic plan being taken place here to sort of thwart the understanding of freedom and the experience and the actualization of freedom for the colonists. How did the political usage of the term slavery evolve during this time? Now, the term of slavery is incredibly important, particularly starting in the late 1760s. And I mentioned in my article how we get this rampant use of the word slavery to really attempt to capture and to articulate the condition of the colonists. Now, the use of the rhetoric device of slavery helps to capture the condition of of the colonists. And again, it's used both as a rhetorical and a conceptual device. Uh, Of course, it's important to keep in mind that there are distinctions at play in the use of slavery by the colonists. The distinction here and really the big contradiction here is that the way that the colonists were using the term slavery is fundamentally and crucially different than chattel slavery or the institution of slavery that was taking place in the southern colonies. What the colonists were really talking about was this idea of political slavery. Now, that's the first really important distinction. The second important distinction that's at play here is the distinction between public and private slavery. Now, private slavery, again, is an issue that is ripe with contradiction and really doesn't become resolved for, you know, nearly 200 years later, when we see the domination of the sexes become a little bit more equalized. But if we look at these two distinctions and these two contradictions in tandem, it helps to illuminate in a more concrete and a fuller picture what the colonists meant by the term of slavery. Importantly, political slavery meant public slavery. And that meant to be denied the opportunity and the possibility to engage in the affairs of the town the affairs of the village, the affairs of the city. And here the colonists are explicitly concerned with the political status that was becoming eroded away by the actions and the the acts of British Parliament. What did the role of a growing desire for a permanent standing army in America add to these feelings? So the issue surrounding surrounding standing armies really reflects the great Republican tradition that was at play and was going on in the 1760s and the 1770s. And it's really important because what the standing armies represented to the colonists was this continuation of domination. And it was this continuation of public domination. Now, the colonists are reading, they're considering, they are hearing, very importantly, both in newspaper articles and around towns and villages, that what's going on from north to south, east and west, is that they have fallen under this condition of slavery, that they are living in this state of quasi-slavery. But what's missing here is reality, and it's here where rhetoric meets reality. Now, for the colonists to see the standing armies, to hear about the threats of standing armies coming to their towns, to their cities, well, it really gave the background context of domination and the background context of slavery a much more forceful bite. It made them actually fearful. And that's why in the title of my article, I talk about the fear of domination. This fear became actualized by 
by actually seeing standing armies, by actually hearing about the incoming threat of standing armies. Of course, we're going to see 10 years later at the Constitutional Convention, this idea of standing armies is so very important in the psyche of the early American Republic. And we see, you know, in Brutus 1 and Brutus 10, the articles from the Anti-Federalists about how the presence of standing armies ultimately leads to the destruction of liberty. And when you put Brutus's argument and you read it back into the context of what was going on in the 1760s and the 1770s, well, what we see is we get the rhetoric of slavery, we get the rhetoric of domination coming to the forefront, we get the presence, the physical material presence of the standing army, we get that in conjunction with this idea of freedom as non-domination, freedom as non-interference, freedom as political action, and we see that the only means, the only path forward for the colonists to actually experience that freedom, to ensure that the destruction of liberty did not come by the hands of the standing armies, was to resist. How does this help us understand the revolutionary era better? Well, I hope it contributes to scholarship on early American political thought in a lot of ways. You know, as I mentioned at the beginning, I am a political theorist. But as I also mentioned that I'm ultimately concerned with the historical and the conceptual parameters of what the early republic looks like. Now, first and foremost, I think it helps us to rethink the rich tradition of political action. I think by taking a look at my piece and looking at the work of other scholars who are working in a similar vein, we're reminded that the history of the American Republic, the, the formation and the events that preceded that and brought it about, well, it's defined by resistance. It's defined by challenges to eternal seats of power. It's defined by challenges against those that seek to exclude. And I also think that what hopefully my article does here is that it shows that not only are the economic conditions, and we see this with the impact on, on trade and manufacturing taking place, but what we see here is that economics and the idea of political representation are ultimately very, very important to the colonists. But what the main issue here, beyond these ideas of impediments towards economic prosperity and political representation, is this idea and this very important and rich history of political thought that reminds us that once individuals are no longer counted within the body politic, meaning once individuals are no longer offered equal protection under law, once they're no longer afforded the protection and the benefits of being a citizen, of having status, well, resistance and revolution and rebellion often breaks out. And what I hope this article does is that it helps us to understand the revolutionary era, era in colonial America in a different light, in a, in, a, in a light that is explicitly more political, but paying due diligence to historical events and historical concepts, but interrogating them in a political light. Dean Caivano, thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me. It's been a blast. The music played in this episode included works by Kevin McLeod and the Sturbridge Colonial Militia. Any unauthorized reproduction or use of this podcast, without the express written permission of the Journal of the American Revolution, is strictly prohibited. For everyone here at Dispatches, I'm Brady Kreitzer saying so long.